This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel. Travel anywhere in the Disney world using your own personal Fairy Godmother. Email them at comedicorweekly at fairygodmothertravel.com and tell them we sent you. Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show, and home of the world's first pair of independently born, identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And man, it's really cold out here in Southern California <laughs> right now. Did you guys like hit the uh, lower 70s? Oh man, it's terrible. I don't I don't like it. What do you, What's your temperature out there, George? Oh, we're in the 20s right now, but that's okay. That's it's, not it's, even humid. It's, it's Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit? I don't, I don't know what temperature scale California uses. We use awesome degrees. <laughs> awesome degrees. <laughs> yeah, well, like the, most of the uh, East Coast, we're, we're having ice and snow, and the kids are going to be going to school till about the middle of July. Really? At this point in time. Nothing like celebrating the 4th of July in geometry class, everyone. <laughs> exactly. Don't regret this idea moving out here at all. None? No, I mean, the ground may get a little shaky every once in a while, but... Man, is it gorgeous right now? I mean, I have a light jacket on. I'm a little chilly, but okay. Did you see the have you seen the previews for the new movie? Uh, Was it got like the rock in it or something? Where like California falls into the ocean? No, are you making that up? No, no. Saw it. uh, Saw it on a preview this weekend at the movies. I don't recall that being a real movie at all. Are you sure you were just watching the WWE? <laughs> that we're going with another W, but we won't go there. So, oh, okay. Uh, well, let's 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 move on to the history. Speaking of the Rock, here are some <laughs> things—a history segment that has to do with mountains. It's time for Disney history. Third Man on the Mountain is a 1959 Walt Disney Productions film set during the golden age of alpinism about a young Swiss man who conquers the mountain that killed his father in cold blood. I'm just kidding about that part. Well, it probably was cold. Actually, it was cold. So, okay, we'll we'll go with that. Uh, The movie is actually based on Banner in the Sky, which is a James Ramsey Ullman novel about the first ascent of the Citadel. And the movie actually inspired the Matterhorn bobsleds at Disneyland. Uh, Walt Disney and his family had taken uh, to vacationing in Europe, because that's apparently what all the cool moguls were doing. And after a trip to Switzerland, Walt became infatuated with the heritage and culture of the area. This sparked his interest in making a film set there. And when he decided on adapting the book Banner in the Sky um, about the first first ascent of the Citadel, uh, it was actually based on a true story. Now, the film itself is centered on Rudy, the son of a famous mountaineer, not a mouseketeer, but a mountaineer, who had died trying to climb the Citadel, which is the tallest mountain in Switzerland. Now, one day while playing hooky from his job as a dishwasher at the town's hotel, he finds Captain Winter, great name by the way, Captain Winter stranded and he saves him. So, he's invited on an expedition with Captain Winter, which he accidentally ruins by getting stranded and making the rest of the team come after him. So Rudy then spends the summer practicing climbing with his boss and his and the boss's daughter, uh, Lisbeth. Oh, she was so cute. She was um, adorable. Oh, yeah. So a- as expected, 
a romance begins to blossom between them. Now, Rudy and Lisbeth, not Rudy and his boss. Although, hey, uh, but that romance is interrupted when he finds out that Captain Winter has hired another guide to help him climb the Citadel, and Rudy runs after them. Uh, during the journey, Rudy finds a passage his father had found, but never showed anybody, which would make the Citadel, Citadel climbable. Uh, on the way to the top, Rudy stays with a fellow climber who gets injured and foregoes being one of the first to reach the top. As a result, he becomes an even bigger hero than the men who made it, even though he is the third man on the mountain and not the first. Hence the title. Now, the movie itself was mostly filmed on location in Zermatt, Switzerland. Walt hired Ken Anakin to direct, who directed two other Disney films abroad, uh, The Story of Robin Hood and His Merry Men and The Sword and the Rose. And for the, his two leads, he actually turned to two of his most recent young stars, uh, James McArthur, who previously starred in The Light in the Forest, and Janet Monroe, who was fresh off the set of Darby O'Gill and The Little People. A professional rock climber was hired to film most of the climbing sequences, and the actors had two weeks of climbing training prior to shooting. McArthur became really good at it. So good, in fact, that he snuck off one day and actually climbed the Matterhorn, uh, much to the dismay of the studio's insurance people. Mountain filming required the crew to travel by mule and helicopter, and in one instance, walk across a really treacherous uh, glacier to get some of the shots. Now, they also had to do so while carrying heavy boxes of equipment. Although, they did add that they never would have been able to transfer all the equipment from the base camp to the shooting location without the help of mules. James MacArthur and some of the other stars uh, were personally chauffeured to the base camp by a helicopter by Herman Geiger one of Switzerland's most famous rescue pilots. And even though they received helicopter rides to base camp, MacArthur and Michael Rennie also helped carry equipment to help film. Now, there was a minimal amount of matte paintings that were used in the film, making the cinematography that much more impressive since it was mostly all real. And as mentioned earlier, the production used the town of uh, Zermatt as its initial base. They used these motorized vehicles that had been banned there since 1947, so Disney had to obtain special permission to operate some in order to transport equipment and supplies. Now, these four-wheel drive vehicles they used were called Unimogs. Not Mogs, you know, half man, half dog. A man, you know, his own best friend. His own best friend. Balls, but <laughs> Unimogs. Okay, so, well, that might be a good cosplay. A Unimog? We could go to D23 as Unimogs. I'm okay with that. Okay, Nobody's so. going to get it, but I'm okay with it. Oh, that's fine. Except the cadets will get it. Yes, they will. Yes, they will. Okay, so uh, moving along. As the Unimogs climb towards the Matterhorn, some narrow passages had to be widened by tearing down fences that had flanked the road. The only reason most residents tolerated it was because they were promised the fences would be completely restored after filming. And the entire film took just about three months to shoot. Just before the film was released, an episode of the TV show Walt Disney Presents, entitled Perilous Assignment, aired on November 6, 1959. Now, the episode was meant to be an in-depth study of the art of mountain climbing. It kind of came across <laughs> as an hour-long commercial for the film. It's because synergy. After, yes, well, it is synergy. He's been doing it, you know, all, way back when, so it makes sense now. After Walt's introduction in the episode, uh, the show actually introduced Gaston Rebuff, who is a French mountain guide. Now, in those days, it was very uncommon for an outsider to become an official guide of the Alps, so it kind of shows how talented of a climber he was. And Gaston was also the film's guide and second unit director. And, and we still haven't tracked down that rumor if he was actually the inspiration for Gaston from... No one climbs like, climbs Gaston. like Gaston. 
That's all I had. Uh, yeah, I was like... <laughs> I, I didn't know where else to go from there. That's all I had, though. Okay, well, they did throw in some behind-the-scenes footage of the filming of the movie, uh, but there were also detailed lessons on how to properly scale a mountain, since most people watching Walt Disney Presents would be scaling mountains. Uh, anyway, the, the climbing footage was pretty nuts, as some of the movers that Gaston performed make you hold your breath. Not the kind of thing the casual viewer will be doing anytime soon. Except for us. Oh, yeah. We're climbing a mountain right now as we record this. Because that's the healthy thing to do. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Excuse me while I breathe into my oxygen. <sighs> okay, here we go. <laughs> so, the movie, Third Man on the Mountain, was released on November 10th, 1959. And it was a critical success and was highly acclaimed for its magnificent location shooting, great writing, and excellent performances. Unfortunately, it was a box office flop. Nobody wanted to see it. Um, it really failed to find an audience, which was a shame because it was a really expensive film to make. And it was later edited into smaller parts, retitled Banner in the Sky, you know, the title that uh, of the book it was based on, and it was shown on the Disneyland TV show on television for free. That's how, how badly they wanted people to see it. Yeah, it, it really is a shame that Third Man on the Mountain never really even enjoyed success in its later years because it really is a great film. I know we got a copy of it from the Disney Dis Movie Rewards. Rewards. That's yeah, where I got yeah. mine. Got our copy from there. And, you know, it's one of those things where you tell the boys you're going to sit down and watch this because I know it's good for you. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then they actually listened to it once. And they enjoyed the film. They thought it was great, a lot of fun. Yeah, there were parts where it was slow. But, you know, any any film that's 30 or 40 years is going to be different from what we're used to today yeah but it was great it was a lot of fun it was gorgeous it was beautiful uh it was funny and i really highly recommend it i think people should check it out on netflix or you know grab their own copy of it i agree it's a, i think it's definitely a great film and really it does look gorgeous uh all the cinematography because they actually are filming on location so for that alone um i like it <laughs> well you know give us a call on the communicore weekly goat line tell us what you think about third man on the mountain or if you've ever had the chance to scale a mountain, we'd love to hear about it. Call us at 424-785-4628. 424-785-GOAT. You don't know what you know till we know you. You, you just don't know. There's one little fact we bet you didn't. One little fact we bet you didn't know. Walt Disney was nominated for 59 Oscars and actually won 26. Wait, is that including the seven mini ones he received for Snow White? Ooh, actually, that's the official tally from AMPAS, the American Motion Picture Association Society of Acronyms and Letters and things I didn't quite know before I started talking. Um, <laughs> so I'm assuming that it's not actually counting those seven. Because I know there were several years where he won multiple awards because he was Walt Disney. Oh. What so, are you going to do? So the answer is no. No. And now we know you. He's a nerd. He's a geek. He's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. Ah. It's George's Book of the Week. Okay, so we were both sent advanced reader's copies, which is really cool. These are galleys. These are proofs that haven't really been corrected of... Heir to the Jedi by Kevin Hearn, and I do hope I'm pronouncing his name right. It just sort of showed up just as we were both finishing Tarkin. You know, I really wasn't sure what to expect. Because if you've listened to previous shows, I sort of fell away from the Star Wars universe 
when it got kind of crazy with the Yuzon Bong and everything like that. But the fact that I know is that it's pretty bad. Nerd. Um, what'd you say? What? what I what sneezed. Okay, good, good. So, you know, you know, Tarkin, we both loved it. It was a great read. Really hoped that Air of the Jedi was going to stand up, would can stand up to it. No, no, yeah, they'd had a fight. Would be able to reach that same level, or at least be just as good or just as exciting as Tarkin was, because I really hate to see the new series tank <laughs> just after a few titles or so, you know? Yeah, that would have been bad. That would have been very yeah. bad. Uh, but to be fair, this title was actually written before that they announced the expanding universe was going away. So with a couple of slight adjustments, you know, they managed to make it fit into the new Disney-owned canon and become part of the official lore, quote-unquote. And, uh, you know, like George just said, we had both just finished Tarkin when this showed up. So the entire time, I was kind of measuring both books up against each other. Yeah. So Heir to the Jedi is is interesting for a few points that we'll talk about. Number one, it, it's written in the first person, and uh, which is kind of odd. And it takes place shortly after the Battle of Yavin. And Luke Skywalker is the main character. So we're really getting the book from from his point of view. And at first, the first person's perspective <laughs> was really weird for a Star Wars novel because I haven't really seen that done before in the Star Wars universe. But it kind of actually made for a really good read once I got into it, once I got into the story of progression. And you get to figure out why it's in the first person. Um, and and you know, it also took place after A New Hope. Which is kind of interesting because we have not seen much of that time period before. Yeah, really. yeah. I mean, it was interesting to me that a lot of the book focused on Luke's Jedi training or, like uh, George said to me in a conversation before, his lack of Jedi training. Because, yeah. really, he had, like, all of 20 minutes with Ben before Vader killed him. Uh, sorry, spoiler again. But, um, <laughs> you know... At this point, Luke literally is like a brand new hero of the Alliance, but he has no idea about these powers or what he's doing or anything about it. So he, he knows nothing, and he, you know, he has this uncertainty about his future as a Jedi, and it, it really made that known throughout the entire book. And that's, I think, where the first-person uh, perspective really came in handy for that kind of thing. Yeah, you're right. It was an easy way, and it didn't hit me until near the uh, end of the book that you got to hear his doubts, his insecurities. He didn't know where to go to learn what it meant to be a Jedi. Yeah, yeah. You know? And and I, I thought that was pretty cool to, to see that perspective. And it is that point that, you know, after Kenobi was struck down, he'd had like 30 seconds in Ben's hovel on Tatooine. Here, hold his lightsaber. And then on the Millennium Falcon here, put this blaster or this helmet with a blast shield on your face. And play with the lightsaber. And oh, then you're also forgetting, oh, let me let a strange voice tell me to turn off all my computers and stuff and shoot a gigantic bomb into it, it exhaust port. Yes. And then happen to get a bigger than two meters. Uh, you know? Yeah. Big, no bigger than a womp rat. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, tell us a little bit about the story. Uh, well, so, you know, aside from all that stuff about him, you know, trying to learn his Jedi powers, it follows Luke. Uh, again, along with R2-D2, because what is Luke without R2-D2? Exactly. And a new companion uh, named Nakari, which I, I hope is correct, um, as they try to rescue an alien crypto cryptographer uh, from the clutches of the Empire. 
And at first, to me, the book was kind of slow moving, but it really ramped up the action as the time moved on. And it really seemed like more of a character piece, you know, really getting to know Luke's mindset immediately after the Battle of Yavin and kind of settling into his role in the Alliance, which, you know, looking back on it, it made for a very interesting read. Yeah, to try to tie some things together. You know, to me, I really like that Hearn used math in a lot of the books, uh, including he actually used formulas that were tied into the chapter titles. And I took it into my brainiac son. I was like, does this make sense to you? I was like, yeah, I know what that means, but I couldn't explain it to you. Oh, thanks, son. Appreciate <laughs> that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the alien cryptographer that they rescue uh, or that they need to rescue, it speaks in a mathematical language. I mean, she can speak basic and, and get along with everything, but math was their world. And she actually got along with R2-D2 for some very funny moments once they were figuring out some jump coordinates and stuff. But it gave it a, little, it gave it a neat twist. And, you know, as, as Jeff mentioned, you know, we see Luke as the battle, uh, the hero of the Battle of Yavin, one of the last remaining Jedi that we know about at the time. And, and, and people that meet him you know, once they find out sort of he's, you know, carrying a lightsaber or has some predilections of being a Jedi, they, they sort of know what a Jedi is, but it had been almost 20 years since the purge, the Empire, you know, since the Emperor purged all the Jedi. Sorry, not not that thing where the government allows crime for 12 hours, where that's a different purge altogether. <laughs> no, yeah, we won't talk about that. That's scary. Um, <laughs> but it's just interesting to think that, you know, in less than, you know, two decades or about a generation, you lose the concept of what a Jedi is altogether. And that's part of the story as well. He doesn't know where to go to have this training. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, uh, you know, overall, I liked it. You know, it gave us some more Luke in his early years, you know, just learning to use his new powers and trying to do good by the rebellion and all that stuff. Um, it wasn't as strong as Tarkin, unfortunately, but it still filled in a really interesting gap of time we didn't know much about. Um, yeah. But I, I did like it. I liked it a lot. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was still kind of creepy, though, every time he sort of was crushing on Leia. Well, I mean, You're like, ah, dude, no, stop. He, he didn't know yet. He didn't know yet, guys. I mean, that's true. It's way creepier that they shared a kiss in Empire, but I mean, <laughs> you know, whatever. And that they let a Wookiee watch. Yes. It, yeah, wait, exactly. What? Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> this week's book was Heir to the Jedi by Kevin Hearn. And I think it's safe to say we, we both liked it. Yeah. So. It was a good addition to the new canon. Yeah. Awesome. Sometimes it's a one, sometimes it's a two. When you gotta go, what you gonna do? It's a bathroom break. A bathroom break. Back by the uh, Paradise Garden Grill, behind Goofy's Sky School, is an out-of-the-way, not-often-used restroom, actually making it my favorite in Disney California Adventure. Um, it's fairly large, and it's unusually fairly quiet, which is weird, um, and in a surprising turn of events, it's also one of the only restrooms still themed to DCA 1.0. You know, in fact, it, it probably is the only one left themed to DCA 1.0, so if you feel like relieving yourself in a place that Eisner built, this is the most definitely the place to do so, and in relative privacy, no less. So, head on down to paradise. I'll be there waiting for you. Wait, that's okay. gross. Okay. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. <laughs> you guys already know I love me some ska music. I've said it a thousand times on the show. 
Thanks a lot, George. Anyway, yeah. So way back when, before Gwen Stefani went off on her own, she was in a little band called No Doubt. You guys know them. They're still around sometimes. They keep popping up. Anyway, before they became a pop music band, they were all about that ska. About that ska. No mainstream. They were not a mainstream band back in the day. Clever. Um, one of their greatest albums, right after the Beacon Street Collection, is Tragic Kingdom. Uh, that's the one where most people recognize them from, or where they made it big, I should say. Now, on the title track of that album, you can hear Remain Seated, Please, uh, followed by its Spanish counterpart, which George is going to say now. Permanecer sentados, por favor. Thank you, George. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an audio track actually taken from the end of the Matterhorn attraction, just before you disembark. And if you are a fan of No Doubt, you already know that the the entire song is about Disneyland anyway, since the group is actually from the area. Yes, that's one of my favorite albums of all Welcome time. Such to a the tragic, tragic kingdom. kingdom. Anyway, before we get in too much trouble, and then we owe No Doubt money for singing one of their songs. Uh-oh. We, we don't no, have we No Doubt money. <laughs> no Doubt. Um, we'd like to announce this week's prize winner... But before we announce the prize, we want to remind everybody during this whole year of a million or so limited time cadets, said it right? Thank you very much. Yes, you did. If you email us your name, address, and birthday to communicorweekly at gmail.com, you can be entered in the prize as well as get some extra cool stuff. Yeah, we pick a random winner every week. It's not just if your birthday is this month. It's a random winner every single time. So send it in now. Exactly. So this week's winner of an Awani prize pack from Gif- Fairy. I almost said Gary. From Gary. Wow, not Gary. No, this is something different. From Fairy Godmother Travel, one of our wonderful supporters, goes to Laura H. in Hamilton, New Jersey. Hooray! Wow. Oh, that's how I had to say it. Jersey. Yeah, Jersey. Right? That's, that's how we talk back in Jersey. <laughs> so congratulations, Laura. Yes, and don't forget to email us. Uh, at communicorweekly at gmail.com with your information to be entered as well. There's still plenty of time. There's always time. time. Okay, so thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Wherever you listen to or watch the show, be sure to leave us a comment or give us a rating on iTunes. Yes, we love the ratings. Again, email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com and not just to be part of the year of a million or so limited time cadets, but also just to tell us how awesome we are. Say hey, we like we like hearing we from like you guys. All that. Yes, thank you. Hey guys, well, what are you thinking? No, that's weird. Let, don't do that. Anyway, yeah, that was. Okay. <laughs> you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com/communicorweekly. Yep, follow us both on Twitter and Instagram, where you can see pictures of the snow near my house. Uh, I'm at Imaginerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, you can leave us a message on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at four two four seven eight five four six two eight. Yep, and visit communicorweekly.com and click on the link for the Communa Store where you can pick up awesome t-shirts and grab a copy of Communicore Weekly the Musical. And of course, be sure to send in your self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856, and I will get you some stickers and your official cadet membership card. And if you feel so inclined, visit patreon.com slash communicorweekly and help support us. We've got some great things going on. Some special bonus features. We can't say too much. We do like bonus features. We do like them. So uh, for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on CommunoCore Weekly, the greatest online show. 
Hey. <laughs>